At the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place. It's the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. So today we're going to build on where Doug was last week in chapter 11. He talked about ways we can be ritually pure in our diet, eating kosher. Chapter 12 was about uh, related to uh, childbirth and how to stay ritually pure. And then today we're going to touch on leprosy. I know you're thinking, oh good, we're going to talk about leprosy this morning. I've been waiting for that. Well, we are hoping to show there's some application here beyond what seems rather monotonous. I'll start with a, a question mark. As you read through Leviticus chapter 13, you're struck that there is different types of things that Moses calls leprous. Verse 1, when you see something that has a scab on your body, somebody has like a leprous sore, you need to go to Aaron the priest. He's going to check you out, examine you, and find out if you're contagious, find out if you're clean or unclean. Some kind of scabby sore. Jump down to verse 9. He talks same word, leprous. When a leprous sore is on a person, he shall be brought to the priest, examine him, find out if he's contagious, but this time it involves his skin being white and even the hairs turning white. Different type of leprosy. Jump down a couple more verses. He mentions another kind of scaly leprosy or skin disease that seems to be affecting your beard or your, or your, uh, your head. Alright. Well, at least they're in the, the, the skin disease family together. Then we get something even weirder in verse 47. If your garment has leprosy. Your garment. Yes, if your garment has a leprous plague in it. Whether it's wool or linen, whether it's leather, if it's greenish or reddish in the garment, what do you do with a leprous garment? Which is what, what you and I might call black mold or mildew. So what in the world does black mold, mildew, Hansen disease, what we know as modern day leprosy that's been mostly taken care of with antibiotics, and these other kind of leprous skin garment or diseases that are affecting your body? There seems to be, because the, the, the word is used as so many different types of things, there seems to be a similarity or a main idea. And the main idea seems to be whether it's something that's eating away at your skin, eating away at your head, or eating away at your garment, leprosy seems to be a symbol of death. And death is something that's impure, and death is something that makes you ritually impure and keeps you out of God's presence. So, whatever type you have, the, the procedure is basically the same. So I won't read this the seven times it gets repeated in this chapter each time. But in general, if you have this thing, you come to the priest, he examines you one, two, even three times. 
checks you out. If you're clean, he declares you're clean. If you're not, he isolates you for seven days, checks you again. Still a little iffy, seven more days. If you're then checked again, you still got it. You're unclean, which means you were pushed out from the community. Could never be in sacred space. Or if you were clean at that point, he would declare you clean. And the idea that Doug mentioned last week is that we all start impure. But before we get into God's presence, we have to move from impure to clean and then from clean to holy to come into God's presence. So I think the main point as we dig into this, because it involves both the garments in your home and your tent, as well as what's on your body and going through examination. Our main point is this. We need to learn how to examine our heart and our home for evidence of life and death, leprosy being the symbol of death. Because leprosy is this idea of deterioration through death, which also reminds us how sin does the same thing in our life, and that sin, like death, like leprosy, ultimately destroys your life. So I want to try and give you four applications related to leprosy that come out of the text, but stay more on the application side rather than digging too much into a rather redundant explanation of examination. All right, four comparisons. First comparison, death, like sin, is denied from God's presence. You cannot come into God's presence with death, with sin in your life. So, here in the passage, it mentions this idea that you need to be examined. The priest shall examine him. The priest shall examine him. And look at the leprosy you have. It goes on. If you do have it, you're isolated for seven days. And another seven days where there's another examination. Again, you're isolated. Seven days if you still got it. Another seven days. And if it's been cleared up, God gives you, through the priest, a pronunciation of being clean. Now, as much as this feels like, whew, I can't wait till next week. Now, I'll talk about this a little bit later in the message, but this is hundreds of years before germ theory. Hundreds of years before the even idea that there could be something that's contagious. These ideas are revolutionary in the Bible, that there could be things on your body that you need to be isolated from the greater community to protect the community from catching germs. So this was revolutionary ideas, as Doug mentioned last week. Many times the Hebrews were rescued from the Black Plague, or at least it's spreading as fast, because they practiced these principles, not really fully understanding all the scientific ramifications of it, but saying, God, we're going to trust you. And the third part of this first point is that if your scab you know, spreads all over the skin, like I said, like sin, it contaminates us, then the priest shall pronounce you unclean. It is indeed leprosy. Now, keep in mind, the priest is not a doctor. He's not prescribing medicine. Many people have made fun of the Bible, and specifically Leviticus, because to get ritually clean after you're declared clean, you take like some bird's blood and rub it all over you, and they're like, sure, yeah, thank goodness Christians aren't in charge. We never would have had scientific development. We'd have bird blood spread all over our leprosy, and that wouldn't work out. So the, the bird blood wasn't medicine. It was a way in which you were made ceremonially or ritually clean again once you were declared clean. So these are rituals, this is not medicine. And yet certainly there's scientific principles here that get alluded to that there's things called contagions. So don't think of the priest as a doctor. Think of him as a public health official checking to see if you have something that might spread into the community. All right, a couple other things to note. Whenever you're trying to figure out what something means in the Old Testament, you want to figure out if there's any patterns in the rest of the Bible. 
So one thing's interesting. As much detail as we hear about leprosy here, not one Jewish person, not one, is ever healed of leprosy to go through this process in the entire Old Testament. Isn't that weird? Like this is a whole chapter of a lot of details related to leprosy. And yet not one Jewish person in the entire Old Testament is ever healed of leprosy. And Drew's going to tell you something important about that next week that I can't give away. Second thing we need to note is that whenever you're not sure what something means in the Old Testament, see if Jesus alluded to this passage or this concept. And there's two times that Jesus encounters leprosy. And when he does, he teaches us some principles about it. I'll address one this week. Drew will address one next week. The principle we notice is if you look up the word leprosy in your Bible concordance or BibleGateway.com, it will jump you to Luke chapter 4. And as you're reading Luke chapter 4, we're going to use some Bible study principles I've mentioned so far. Number one, whenever you come to a passage of the Bible, you need to ask yourself the Jesus principle. What does this passage predict, describe, or reveal about Jesus' character, his work, or his mission? It's going to be very, very crystal clear today from Jesus. Second thing. When you're wondering, well, do I still have to go to a priest to be ritually unclean? If you want to find out if a principle in the Old Testament is still under operation in the New Testament, you look and see if it gets restated in the New Testament. So if it says, do not murder in the Old Testament, yes. It says again in the New Testament, do not murder. In fact, don't even hate people. That means it's a universal principle. Other times, like Doug mentioned last week, there's do not eat unclean food. You jump to Acts chapter 7 or 8. And God brings down all the unclean food and says, Peter, kill and eat. Basically saying Jesus has fulfilled all of the impurity laws related to our eating. Don't worry about the unkosher food anymore. And now the main principle of the un- unclean f- uh, food is, Peter, go and build relationships with people different from you, like the Gentiles and Cornelius. In the same way that God, through that vision, tells Peter the main principle of the dietary laws was that now they're fulfilled in Christ, and now I want you to build relationships with people who are Gentiles. Jesus says the exact same thing about leprosy here in Luke chapter 4. So, let me give you a little pattern. Here's what we were learning in Leviticus, in chapter 13. Number one, the priest examines you to see if you're clean and unclean. Second, the priest declares you clean, if you are. Thirdly, leprosy, if you have it, makes one unclean and unholy. Two steps. So lastly, once you've been cleaned, then you could enter holy space. Now, with that in mind, let me give you a quick overview of Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 begins with Jesus being examined by Satan. He's tested three times. He's examined three times. Will he give in to temptation? Will he make bread out of um, stone? Will he bow down to Satan if he can have all the thrones of the world? And after three times of being examined, what has he found? He is found to be clean, uncorruptible. The very next part of Luke, Jesus fulfills predictions and claims to be the healer and ultimate cleaner of the Messiah. He even mentions being a physician. He says, you've heard it said, physician heal thyself. I have come to heal the Jewish people. And then he jumps into a next section where he mentions leprosy. I'll sort of show you what he says in a second. But he specifically jumps into a passage about where leprosy played a role in the Old Testament. Then just as he finishes that portion, he delivers uh, some unclean spirits 
out of a man and the unclean spirits turn and say, that's the Holy One of Israel. It's almost the exact same pattern we see in Leviticus. We have holiness, we have cleanness, etc. So let me show you to sort of walk you through this journey, what this looked like. This is an actual synagogue in Galilee. I got a chance to visit this uh, two years ago and four years ago. It's in Gamla. So this particular one, we hiked down. It takes about a half hour to get there. Had a wall around it, but this is what an actual synagogue would look like. And the book of Luke tells us that Jesus was teaching in the synagogues around Galilee. So almost with 100% certainty, we can say that Jesus taught in this very synagogue. If we zoom down, you see I took a picture of what a synagogue looked like. If you look around the edges, you can see the seats in the back, the different steps you would sit on. People would be gathered all around. And what would happen is right in the section I'm standing is where the reading of the day would occur. So Jesus, the rabbi, comes into the synagogue. The first thing he does is he walks over to the scroll closet. Think of it about the size of a broom closet made out of stone. And that's where you'd pull out the scroll for the day. So Jesus pulls out his scroll. It's his reading for the day. It just so happens that he will be reading from Isaiah. He sits down. As he goes to do the reading of the day, people are gathered around on the steps. They're watching as he says, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news. Good news to the poor. Liberty to those in captivity. He finishes reading. He then says, And these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Which is his way of saying, this prophecy of the Messiah that you've heard about your whole life, I am him. And how do you think the people respond? Are they mad or are they happy? They are amazed and thrilled if you look at Luke. They are like, yes! We knew the Messiah was coming and we hoped he'd be from Galilee. They are thrilled. They are excited. They are jump up and down happy to find out the Messiah has come from their district. Surprisingly, actually, I thought they would be mad. And then Jesus says, I am the cleaner. I am the one that can clean you and make you holy, predicted by the Old Testament. He then goes on and says, but you will say to me, physician, heal thyself. But I tell you. And then he gives a summary of the Old Testament, including some teaching on leprosy. He says, you surely will say, physician, heal yourself. But I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Now, they've just accepted him. He says, surely, Elijah, there were lots and lots of Jewish widows who needed help. But he went and helped the Gentile widow. And there were lots of Jewish people during the days of Elijah who had leprosy, but Elijah did not heal any of the Jewish people with leprosy. Instead, he healed Naaman, the Syrian. And he's done talking. Now, how do you think the people respond? Well, what did he really say? He said, I've come as the Messiah, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. I've come to clean Jewish people and make them holy. I've come to clean Gentile people and make them holy. Now, how do you think they react? They come, go from being amazed and thrilled and jumping up and down and marveling at his gracious words to filled with wrath. And they rose up, thrust him out of the city, and they went up to throw him down off a cliff. 
and passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So let me zoom the camera out just a little bit further, and you'll notice that this synagogue is right next to a cliff. So when Jesus declares himself the cleaner of Jews and Gentiles, that's when they get angry, they march him up, probably to throw him off of this cliff. He then, I don't know if he freeze-frames them or what he does, or tells them they don't have the evidence that is required of Levitical law, he then marches through them and they end up not throwing him off the cliff. Then the very next thing that happens in the story in Luke is that he goes amongst the Gentiles, unclean people, cleaning them, making them holy, including some with an unclean spirit, to which he delivers them, and the unclean spirit says, that's the Holy One of Israel. So it seems like Jesus' main principle of whatever Leviticus chapter 13 means is that we need to be people who need to be cleaned ourselves. That's why leprosy is like death is like sin. And we need to reach out to other people who are different from us politically, different from us religiously, and teach them about a God who can clean them and make them holy. So, with that in mind, let's move to our second point. Sin, like death like sin, is a deterioration of God's life. Sin deteriorates you. Leprosy deteriorates you. It literally makes it so you cannot feel anymore. You lose, you lose the ability to feel. Your nerves are dying. And that's a lot what sin does. Think about how sin or temptation works in your life. It usually begins as nothing. Just a little something in your life. Usually it's pretty painless early on when you fudge a little bit, change a story a little bit, give in to a little bit of temptation. It's relatively painless in the first stages. It grows very, very slowly in your life as it begins to take over. Sometimes they can even remit for a little bit, a season, a day, a year, and then it resurges itself later. Another thing about sin is it can numb your senses. In the same way you lose the ability to feel with leprosy, the more you give yourself over to temptation, it deteriorates your ability to hear from God, your ability to start keep your moral compass in place, and ultimately, death like sin like leprosy will destroy your life because it's a deterioration of God's life. So here, explaining the basically the same process I already mentioned, if you come with this particular type of leprosy, it is going to have a spot of raw flesh. And that raw flesh is something that's deteriorating your body, the same way sin does or temptation does. The leprosy can break out, it's beginning to spread, it's beginning to cover all of the skin. And I think there's some visual aid warnings here that in the same way leprosy spreads, be careful what you give into, be careful what you tolerate, be be careful of the compromises you let occur. They will spread in your life and destroy you in the same way. Now, here in Leviticus, what they're primarily doing is guarding against sacred space. Because if you come into sacred space with death, you could be struck down dead because death cannot enter into God's space. So most of these requirements or most of these explanations are protecting sacred space and protecting the community from contagions. Point three. Death, like sin, has a destination of isolation and destruction. If you continue to hold on to things that are not of God, it will isolate you from God, isolate you from others, and will ultimately be destroyed. And the same thing's true here of leprosy. If the body develops a boil on the skin and it's healed, there's white pus and all kinds of nasty stuff here, then the priest shall examine it, and the priest shall isolate him seven days. You get isolated when death comes into your life. It spreads over the skin. It's destroying you. He goes on the next verse. 
Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare. He shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean, and he shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. So as long as you have this condition, you have to act and mourn. These are actually statements of mourning. You would tear out your hair, rip your clothes, shave off your beard. This is a way of mourning someone's death in those days. In this case, you're mourning your own death because you are pushed out of sacred space. You're pushed away from the community. You're literally mourning that you are away from sacred space. You can't go into the temple. You can't go into community. You can't meet their family. You can't go to family gatherings. You are literally isolated in the darkness. And your leprosy, like sin, has isolated you from the very things that could restore you. I think here there's a real visual aid to how we think about temptation in our life. Now, this morning is really interesting because now he's going to transition from talking about leprosy of the skin to leprosy of the garments and the tents, what we call mildew. And if you search the word mildew, I'm sure we've all done this, search the word mildew in the Bible, it's surprising how often it comes up. It's mentioned in Leviticus, but it's mentioned several times as a judgment from God. First Kings, Second Chronicles, Amos, and Haggai, that God, when you rebel against God, you move away from his life, he smites you with a variety of things, pestilence, a locust, and mildew. The famine in the land, pestilence, you moved away from God, the source of joy, and now there's mildew, something that's corrupting the things you care about, your garments, your shoes, your shirts, your tents. And Amos, I blasted you with blight and mildew. Haggai, I struck you with blight and mildew. So I think the principle here is that as you move away from God, you increasingly hold on to things that are dead instead of choosing to come into God's presence, the source of life. Now, one of my favorite books that addresses this is a book um, called, by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce is a story of an imaginary bus ride. A group of people are in hell. And they are dead ghosts, but they don't even know it. They're so committed to certain death-giving habits that they're given a bus ride to come to heaven. When they get to heaven, the source of life and joy and peace, they all refuse to come into heaven because they're holding on to some dead habit. And they'd rather hold on to their dead habit in hell than to find the joy and peace and forgiveness of being in heaven. One lady is so held on to her sensuality, she's always found her identity in her ability to attract a man. She's walking around, she gets off the bus from hell, she's walking around strutting her stuff, and she doesn't even know that she's walking dead. She's literally a corpse, de 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 decontaminating, she's got her guts falling out, and she's putting on lipstick. And the angel says to her, you don't need to find your identity in how you look, in your beauty, in your sensuality. Here in heaven, you have an inner beauty. She goes, no, I don't want to live in a place that I cannot define myself by my sensuality. So she holds on to death and returns on the bus rather than experiencing the joy of heaven. Another woman is addicted to grumbling. She sounds something like this. I've had a dreadful time, dear. I was supposed to meet Mrs. Stone here on Sink Street, and if I've told her once, I've told her a thousand times, I will not meet on Sink Street, because here on Sink Street is where Marjorie Banks lives. 
Oh, and I used to live with Marjorie Banks. And the thing about Marjorie is that, well, she started off kind, but when we lived together, we agreed that she would take care of the house and I would take care of the cooking. And and I I know you're going to tell me I handled this well, uh, but don't speak now. Let me continue. What happened was that, that she became so selfish. Just she would criticize people behind their back and not even know it. She would gossip about people when they weren't even in the room. And so I finally had to say to her, I said, Marjorie, you have become so, Margaret rather, you have become so selfish, so changed. I think I'm entitled to a little consideration. And she just grumbles and mumbles her way through life, gossiping about gossips, criticizing the criticizer. And the angel says, why won't she come into heaven? He says, because she's no longer just a grumble. She's so taught herself to grumble. She's no longer a grumbler. She's become a grumble that goes on forever and ever into eternity. And the warning here is that whether you're holding on to self-righteousness, into grumbling, holding on to bitterness, holding on to the need to identify yourself by your works or by your beauty or by your resume or by your titles, God His presence is a source of life. And you can't come into His presence. And when you hold on to those things, it isolates you from other people. Nobody wanted to hang out with this lady. You know people like this. You get around them and they just grumble and they don't even know it. They're so critical and they don't even know it. And what happens? People isolate themselves from them. Ooh, it's really a killjoy to be around you. They get isolated from God and from each other. I think that's what's, what's going on here and what's being communicated in this idea of leprosy isolating us the same way sin and death do. Point four, comparison. Sin, like death, drives us to pursue deliverance in life. So again, the priest examines you, plague, 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 examines you, plague, 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 plague. This time he's looking at plagues that are in the garments, in your tent. And he says, listen, if he keeps coming back, you've got to burn the garment. Not my shirt! Yep, sorry, honey. No, I've had that thing for 20 years. I'm sorry, the, the book of Leviticus says the mildew came in. We tried to wash it. It came back. We waited seven days. The mildew got worse. We burned your shoes. We burned that old shirt. So this is a whole process where deterioration of mildew destroying your life, it also had to be isolated, which again, long before germ theory, long before contagion theory, long before science, Black mold, the contamination of black mold, this idea that there comes a time you need to burn stuff. If you can't wash it, you burn it. And I think there's an implication here, too. If you in your life refuse to allow God to wash you, if you refuse to God to make you holy, God will eventually burn up the dead things you're holding on to. Because God's going to burn up betrayal. He's going to burn up self-centeredness. He's going to burn up self-righteousness. And he wants you to let go of those things so that you can spend eternity with him. But if you choose to hold on to your grumbling, hold on to your bitterness, hold on to your death, you'll be thrown into the furnace with the dead stuff, despite the fact God made a way for you to be separated from your dead stuff. So you burn the garment, it's burned in fire. Now again, I said death like sin drives us to pursue deliverance. When you really struggle with sin, when you try and keep your own standards and realize you can't, when you realize how dead we all are inside... You start saying, God, I need to deliver. I need to find a new solution. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus specifically mentioned Naaman. If you remember the story of Naaman, Naaman was a Syrian. He had power. He had huge title, huge um, influence. He was a leader's leader, but he had leprosy. 
So for the first time in his life, he's pursuing solutions in the spiritual world. He didn't believe in the God of the Hebrews, but he had enslaved one of their little kids. This little girl says, I know somebody who could, who could rescue you. Here's a Hebrew girl kidnapped, stolen from her homeland, caring for her master because he's sick and because he has leprosy, and telling him how he can get rescued by her God. Seems like the same principle Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 4, going to the Gentiles. So what happens is Naaman goes and finds Elijah. Elijah says, go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River. He's like, I thought you'd come out and wave your hand or do some magic spell or something. Water, don't we have enough rivers here in Syria? Will you trust God by faith to wash you and clean you? His servant says to him, hey, if he asked you to do something hard, wouldn't you have done it? Oh, just, why don't I do something simple? Goes in the water, dips in, gets out one time, nothing. Two times, nothing. Three times, nothing. Four, nothing, nothing. Six times, nothing. Could have said, that's it. Made a fool out of me. But he decides to trust that the God of Israel could wash and cleanse him. He goes down the seventh time, comes out of the water, and he is cleansed. And he's like, oh my goodness, the God of Israel. It's not magic water. The God of Israel can wash you and make you holy. And that is in the same way. Sin, death, your own brokenness, it's designed to draw you to pursue the God of life. I've got a real problem with my anger, God. I've got a real problem with grumbling, God. God says, let this draw you to the God of life who can breathe into you joy and gentleness and kindness and self-control that you need. Now, the main context here in chapter 13 seems to be that God was trying to protect the people from contagions. So a little quick history of how Christians have spoken to this over the years. Again, here's where you get washed in the same way Naaman was. And again, if you're washed a second time, you could be clean. And many of you may know the name of Ignace Semmelweis. You may know it well enough to say it better than I did. But in 1870, long before Pascal and others developed germ theory, he noticed, as a doctor in Hungary, if I remember, or working in Vienna, that the women who gave birth in the alley or the streets, not in the doctor's office, they didn't die as much. Those who came to the, to the hospital, the mortality rate was five times higher. Five times to go to the doctor. And he was concerned. Wouldn't you be? Why are the people in the doctor's office dying five times more than those who are giving birth on the street? He began to look into this, and he had several bizarre theories. He eventually came to the conclusion that the doctors and nurses were contaminating the women and giving them the thing that was killing them. So he proposed that you begin to wash your hands. In fact, he would say all the time, God, for God's sake, wash your hands. And instead of just washing with water, he wants you to wash with chlorine. So he made these basins. And the science of the day were laughed at him. That's ridiculous. There's no way this is happening. But in those days, the doctors, not only who delivered the babies, were working with cadavers. So you'd be working on a cadaver, exploring how human anatomy worked. And it's, oh, someone's here to get birth. You might wash your hands, but not with sanitized uh, chlorine. Besides, what are you getting off a dead body anyway? It's fine. You walk over. You deliver the baby. Some uh, pieces, parts of the, the cadaver get in, and you end up infecting and killing the woman. By the end of his life, they rejected his work. And it would take years later until a Bible-believing Christian named Blaise Pascal shows up and develops germ theory. 
It's always amazing to me people think that the Bible and faith, science and faith, are the opposite. When almost every major science was developed by a Bible-believing Christian. The founder of biology, Blaise Pascal, developed what we know as germ theory, which is that there are germs that can be passed from person to person. We do need to wash our hands. We do need to cleanse ourselves. And these things found in the 1800s, Leviticus has been talking about since the 1000 B.C. So sometimes you come to the Bible and you're like, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And sometimes you say, God, I'm going to obey you and trust you, even though I don't have the whole picture. Because sometimes it takes thousands of years before we begin to understand some of the ramifications of what he said. So, application. What are some takeaways? I think the main takeaway here, this death-life metaphor, is that we are called to bring life to death. When you find a dead spot in yourself, with your anger, with your tongue, with your attitude, I think that's a call for us to say, God, I don't want to be isolated from you. I don't want to be isolated from the community. These attitudes, these habits I have are hurting me. I need you to examine me, and I need to, God, ask for more of your life to come breathe into these dead spots. In fact, the idea of the priest examining you, the word examine is used twice in the New Testament. One, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians that you need to examine the extent of your own leprosy, your own death, your own sin. Examine yourself as to whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not know yourself that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless indeed you're disqualified. There's an appropriate place to ask yourself, have I ever asked Christ to be my forgiver? And if I have, then ask yourself, if Christ is my forgiver and leader, if he has made me a new creature, then why do I keep finding my identity in how I look, not how he sees me, on how other people feel about me or how I'm perceived, not how he sees me? on my next quarterly results or the size of my bank account, if I really am a Christian, let me examine myself. Why do I find my identity not in who he says I am, but who I say I am? You've got leprosy. And even though you may have been cleansed, you're not operating or walking in your holiness, in your new identity. So examine yourself. See the extent of the leprosy, how it's affecting your life. The second way the word examine is used is for communion. You've probably heard this in communion. Let a man examine himself when you take communion so that he can eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But even here, if you remember the passage in Corinthians, what would happen is the rich and the poor would come together, very different. The Greek Romans had a caste system that would never happen. But the Christians were so unified in Christ, they would come together. But because the rich got off work quicker, they would come to this communion, which wasn't a wafer and a drink, it was a whole meal. And they would eat all the food because they got there early. And then the poor got off work, and they showed up, and there's no food left. And so Paul's rebuking them. He's saying, you need to examine yourself and how you treat the body of Christ. You're not treating the body like the body. Because you think this is about taking a certain ritual of communion, but you're doing it in such a way that's actually not loving your brother and eating the food that they needed that evening. So I think in the same way we need to examine the extent of our leprosy, we should diagnose the seriousness of our leprosy. Are your dead habits, your dead spots affecting the people around you? Your neighbor, your spouse, your kids. It's worth taking some time with God to say, God, could you examine me? How clean am I these days? You tell me I'm clean in Christ, but I'm not living out or walking out that cleanness. God, I want to walk in the cleanness and the holiness that you have for me. I had this moment where I felt uh, God was examining me this week. 
was down in Nashville at a conference, and we were listening to four people speak on things they're doing to help eliminate abortion. And one of the tragic uh, statistics they shared that is in Finland and Denmark, they have a 100% mortality rate on killing kids in the womb that have Down syndrome. 100%. They're pretty proud of that fact. And the woman that was sharing this through a broken heart, this fact, she said, we need to get to the place that we realize that these children with autism or children with Down syndrome are made in God's image with autism, made in God's image with Down syndrome. And God really spoke that to my heart, that often I will think of my son as Quinn, who has autism, as made in God's image, and his autism is the result of the fall. And I love him just the same. But I really felt like God was telling me, do you see his uniqueness? Do you see his unique perspective? Do you see his unique take on life? Not with what he can't do, but with I have made him to glorify me the way he is. I really felt like God was examining my heart, whether or not I had a dead spot, and how I was even seeing my own son and how I was celebrating and, and focusing maybe too much on the challenges and not the beauty before me. And then lastly, I think based on Jesus' application of the Gentiles, are we pursuing anyone we know who might have leprosy too? Are you building relationships with people far from God? Are you building relationships with Naamans? Are you building relationships with people who are outside of your particular Christian community, like those in the synagogue? I had a chance to do that this week. We also had a lady who spoke at the conference. She's not a Christian. She's a pretty um, neat lady. She was the uh, lesbian uh, corporal who actually got don't um, ask, don't tell, taken out of the army. And so I sat down with her. And I just said, you know, tell me a little bit about your faith journey. And, she's, and I said, I'm teaching through Leviticus right now. She's like, oh, I hate Leviticus. And uh, we just had a great half-hour, hour conversation about her faith and how much she disliked Christians. And, and I talked a lot about the God of love and, and a God who, who loved her, wanted to be in a relationship with her. And, and she would befriended somebody else who I befriended both of them in this lunch. And they, sent, they both sent me uh, Facebook messages from Facebook just saying, yeah, I just really appreciate the conversation that, that there's a God who may want to know me and that the, the circumstances I got or the case studies I've got on Christians may not be the whole story. And, but just continue to remind me that God is calling us to interact with people different from us, different beliefs from us, different politics in us maybe, different takes on things. But God is calling us to be salt and light and to proclaim that we too are unclean and need to be washed and we are made holy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time today thinking about this rather obscure passage about leprosy. Father, and help, thank you for reminding us that ultimately it's about you and your ability to wash us and make us whole. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. We'll see you next week.